My name's Preston, one of the elders. Uh, our pastor, Mike, is on a well-earned vacation. I believe he will be back next week. Uh, <clears throat> so please find in your Bibles Matthew chapter 12. We'll focus on verses 18 to 21, but I want to start at verse 15, and we'll be looking at this passage this morning. So Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Well, our times these days are marked by... The culture of outrage. Um, we see it quite clearly in social media where people offer all kinds of comments with uh, claiming authority and knowledge but with almost no accountability. We see it sometimes in the way headlines are worded. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes headlines are, and this not, it's not just in news, this is also on memes, this is on videos, cap captions and photos, things like that, and it's not just about what has happened but it's about the outrage over what has happened. So, and it's all designed to get clicks. It's a business model. It's not about telling us what's going on. It's about somebody's mad. And if, you, if your sympathies, if your values lie with the outraged, then you see that and you feel the outrage. But if your sympathies lie with whoever's involved with what happened, then you feel outrage at the outrage. It's all designed <laughs> to stir up the culture of outrage. Uh, so I would just suggest we all take a nice deep breath and just affect the world with some gentleness because that is what we need. But the world needs a gentleness that we do not have naturally. They need more gentleness than we have on our own, which brings us to our text for today. And on a personal level, uh, first let me just say you all look wonderful, you all look really nice, but I know you and I are a broken mess. Okay, so you don't have to pretend uh, we are all just what the text says, bruised reeds, smoldering wicks. And I hope today that, that we'll all be reminded of just how loved and cherished we are by Jesus, even in our brokenness, and how our, our brokenness actually draws out his gentleness and his love to us. So in our text, Matthew sees Jesus' actions... And we'll look back at those in some more detail. But he sees what Jesus did as a fulfillment of what Isaiah had spoken about centuries before. It's in chapter 42 of Isaiah that Matthew quotes. And we're given a portrait of Jesus in his gentleness that is, I believe, medicine to our souls. I hope it is. It is to mine. I hope it will be to yours. So let's see first in verse 18 that Jesus' gentleness flows from his unique relationship to the Father. Verse 18, it says, here is my servant. Now the word here is... The word that's translated here is, in the original language, is more like behold, okay? So I really wish the NIV had put <laughs> the behold in there because you just kind of look over, you just miss the force of it because the Lord is saying to us, look, pay attention, stop what you're doing, look, behold, 
So stop looking, stop looking at your phones, look to Jesus. You know, this, he's drawing our attention to this. So pay attention, not because it's me, but because the Lord has said, behold, he wants to tell us something about his son, Jesus, this morning. So then he says, here, behold, my servant. Now, this is not the typical word for, for slave. It's also used of a child, someone raised in a home, raised in that environment. Jesus is the Lord's servant. He's completely committed, oriented to the Lord and the Lord's purpose of his life. But he is more than that. He is, of course, God's unique son. And then he says, here's my servant whom I have chosen. And there is, there's a lot more to this, of course. But we see here that, that the father chose the son to redeem us even before he created the world. Someone asks, you know, why is there suffering so Jesus could suffer? Why is there death so Jesus could die? God chose Jesus. Revelation calls him the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. Before there was, there was blood created, there was a blood-bought redemption. That's actually, I have to footnote John Piper on that handy quote. Um, <clears throat> so our salvation has been in the heart and mind of God since even before he created the world. Then he says, uh, he's the one I love in whom I delight. God the Father delights in his Son. John 17 tells us that the Father and Son, by implication the Holy Spirit, exist in this relationship of, of delight, this perfect mixture of love and honor and glory. And you know, it's, it's kind of hard for us to conceive. I learned a little bit of this when I became a father. But I will confess, for those of you who don't know me well or yourselves well, my kids did not always delight me. Sometimes they drove me crazy. Sometimes they still do. Not my fault anymore, but they still do. It's okay. But not so with God. This eternal relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit of love and delight, this, this is amazing. And this is what he draws us into when he saves us. This is why he created us. Not, not because he was lonely, not because he needed affirmation, not because he needed servants. Not because he wanted someone to love him. It is this overflow of love from Father and Son and Spirit. It's like it just spills out into creation, creating people who could reflect Jesus, who could reflect the Son back to, to God and, and to one another. Even if we do it imperfectly, he delights in that because he delights in Jesus. We don't often think about God's delight, his pleasure, his happiness. Don't wake up in the morning thinking, God is really happy today. Just, I don't know, seems a bit awkward, doesn't it? And yet, he is. He is delighted. I want to see just a couple of other ways this, this concept, this word is used of God's pleasure or God's delight. It, it says, if we back up to Matthew chapter 11, we see that God delights in his election of us in Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. He says, at that time... Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Same word. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Mm-hmm. Now, don't let thoughts of election or predestination trouble you, okay? Let them encourage you. It means that there is a multitude too numerous for us to count that is brought into this relationship of delight of father and son and spirit god delighted to do this jesus said in luke 12 do not fear little flock god is delighted to give you the kingdom 
But then some hear about this and they wonder and, and worry and they say, well, how can I be sure I'm, I'm part of that great multitude? I'm one of those chosen, those elect. There is only one way to be sure, and that is to turn from your sin and abandon hope in yourself and put your hope in Christ. And you don't have to know if you're chosen or elect to do that. All you need to know is that you're a sinner and that Jesus can save you because he is God's son, he has died, and he has risen again. That's all you have to know. You're a sinner. I think we all know that. I trust you know that. You need to know, need to be sure Jesus can save you, and you go to him. And he makes this promise, the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. And then there's another way this, this concept of the wording, pleasure, delight is used. God is delighted to save us through the death of the Son in whom he delights. It is, it is profound and it is sobering. But this we see in Isaiah 53. To me, it's one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture using the Christian Standard Version. It says this, Yet the Lord was pleased. He took pleasure in what? The Lord was pleased to, to, to crush him severely. It's, it's mysterious and it's profound. He delights in his son, and yet he delights in crushing the son to make him a guilt offering. He will see his seed. He will prolong his pleasure, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure in our redemption, glorifying the son through the redemption of us, that will be accomplished. So yes, God is delighted. God is well-pleased. He is well-pleased in Jesus. And as we'll see, he's well-pleased in us for Jesus' sake. Then the last part of verse 18 says that I will put my spirit on him. So we've talked about Jesus as a servant, as God's son in whom he delights. But the Lord has anointed this servant uniquely for a saving work. And you may know that the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word for anointed one. Uh, the Greek word we use named Christ. Not a, didn't start as a name, started as a title, but it's the, the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew word. <clears throat> All of these refer to what the Old Testament predicts, this figure who would come, who would be anointed, who would fulfill his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what Jesus did. We see that beginning at his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him, not uh, to anoint him, to empower him for his ministry, to to serve all the miracles, everything that he did, to die and to rise again. The Holy Spirit empowered everything that Jesus did. So Jesus' gentleness, all of this flows from, from his unique relationship with, with the Father. And then in the rest of this passage from verse 19, we see that his gentleness is at the heart of his work as Messiah. So we see his mission. It's described first in verse 18. It says, he will proclaim justice to the nations. And then in verse 20, it says, he will bring justice to victory. So bringing justice to the nations, that is central to what Jesus came to do. No one is more passionate for justice than God. Now that might surprise you, partly because of the culture of outrage, but to be honest, we can be honest, injustice and oppression have been a part of human experience since the fall of humanity. And it's especially tragic when the injustice comes from Christians. We rarely do well with power. We see it in those institutional forms of Christianity that have had such power and influence in this part of the world, some good, some not so good. I see it in my home country with this unhealthy blend of, of Christianity and political power. <clears throat> we can't excuse it. We can't pretend it doesn't happen. 
But the failure of God's people is not God's failure, and Jesus will bring justice even in these situations. But some people see the injustice and they conclude, well, if, if God could stop injustice and he doesn't, then he's either not good or he doesn't exist. And a lot of people really struggle with that, and it's, it's a hard question, right? Well, um, guess what? None of us can prove absolutely that God exists, and none of us can prove absolutely that God does not exist. Both of those views are based on some kind of faith. But I will say this, the existence of God provides a better basis for justice for human rights than, than if there is no God. Now here, I'm, I'm, what I'm about to say, I'll follow an argument made by the, the late Timothy Keller because he says it really well. So um, <clears throat> some of what I'm about to say comes from some stuff he said. So even atheistic scholars will acknowledge that even the concept of, of human rights, the, the, that as a cultural value, is largely due to the influence of Christianity uh, over history. But over the years, as, as, that, as cultures drifted farther from those moorings, attempts have been made to anchor human rights and, and a concept of justice apart from any kind of belief in God, any kind of religious commitments. So they said, well, there has to be a, another basis for human rights. So some have suggested, for example, nature. But nature doesn't really help us because in nature, especially the Darwinist view, the strong eat the weak. The weak don't have rights. The strong have the rights. The strong are supposed to eat the weak in the Darwin view. So sorry for the weak, no rights. They can't claim injustice. And then maybe some have suggested the majority view. That is, within a, a, a group, they decide what, what is right and wrong, and they can make those conclusions for themselves. Well, that worked really well in Germany, uh, mid-20th mid century, right? Hitler had a majority. He was elected by a majority. Cannibalistic cultures, they have a majority. So the majority has the rules. The minority cannot claim injustice. Justice is made to be used by those not in power. But in the nature view, under Darwin... The weak have no claim. Under majority rule, the minority has no power. What about unique human capacities like complex rational thought? Now, you know, hum humans are unique at the level of thought, complex thought. But what about humans who lack those capacities, like infants? They'll develop in time, but they're not born with those abilities. What about the elderly? You know, I think of my mom, she's 98. She's sweet as ever. Complex thought, that's pretty much not there. <laughs> she knows I'm her favorite. That's, that's really about all she needs to do. <laughs> I, I do have to remind her, but, you know, it works. As long as my sisters aren't there on the call, you know, to, to contradict. But what about the elder who, who no longer have the capacity for rational decisions? Someone in a coma who lacks the capacity to speak for themselves. What about those who are mentally impaired? Can they claim justice? Not if the basis of justice is those capacities. And then some have suggested what we'd call long-standing widespread consensus. That is, people generally around the world, civilized nations maybe, have agreed for a long time over what is just and unjust, what is right and wrong. Yeah, that works until you start reading history and you realize that until, you know, maybe three or four centuries ago, slavery was considered acceptable for a long time, four centuries by most of the world. So 
we find that if we look anywhere else for a basis for justice, we're, we're really left wanting. But Christianity would say uh, there is a basis for justice in that every human, regardless of their capacities, regardless of their social status or anything else, they, because they are created, we are created in the image of God, we have a claim for justice. So you may be here today, you may be watching, you may not believe in God yet, but I hope you can at least consider that the existence of God makes for a better argument, a better reason for justice than if there is no God. And we have to admit on this issue, we don't have all the answers. I'm not here to do that. I'll let Mike do that when he gets back. Um, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand God's timing, why he allows some things in light of what he doesn't allow. But there are two lessons, I think, from the book of Job that can help us. One is that we don't have to have all the answers. That's why these, these guys are debating back and forth throughout the book. They don't have the answers, and we don't have to have the answers either. And second, the Lord is worthy of our worship no matter what happens to us, whether that's the, the cancer diagnosis or the unjust treatment in, in relationship or whether it's something happening around us in society or that's oppression and injustice and, and far worse things. So to come back to our text, justice is important to the Lord. He'll bring justice to the nations. Every injustice, personal and societal, will be addressed. But Jesus does this in a way that is radically different from the way kingdoms are normally established. It's not through revolution, it's not through military force, not through political power, but it is through gentleness. Now to see this, let's look at the context of our, our passage for today. In chapter 11, I read part of that earlier, but this happened after Jesus had seen various responses to his ministry, to his disciples' ministry, after he'd, he'd sent them out. And he invited the weary and the burdened to come to him because he is gentle and humble. So verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Boy, what a, what a refreshing invitation, right? It's gentle, humble. And then in chapter 12, we can see why people were weary and burdened. We see two encounters Jesus had with Pharisees, both over the Sabbath. Pharisees accused Jesus in both cases of violating the Sabbath in one way or another. But in both times, his response was actually quite gentle. He just asked questions. He just first points them to the Scriptures. Have you not read in the Scriptures? And he deals with the first question. Then he, the second question, he says, who among you would not basically do good on the Sabbath. It's not a violation of the Sabbath to do good. Quite a gentle response in terms, compared to what he could have done, right? But their reaction is outrage, right? Verse 14, their reaction is to start working on a plan to destroy him. Jesus, of course, knew this, and he withdrew. That's in verse 15. That's what we started reading this morning. He hadn't come at that point to confront them with worldly power, with force. He didn't run away in fear, but in his gentleness and his wisdom, he trusted the Father's timing, and he put some distance between him and them. But the crowd followed him, and he healed them. But he warned them not to tell others about him. That's in verse 16. Now, why the warning? Why would he warn people not to tell others about him? Well, I think the answer lies in this. To a first century Jew... 
the concept of God bringing justice to the nations meant judgment. It meant God would bring justice to the nations and destroy them. So most of them had misunderstood their scriptures. Jesus was not the Messiah they expected because he came not in military force or power, but in gentleness. He doesn't broadcast his identity to people, his identity as my Messiah to people who aren't ready for it. That time will come. The time for confrontation will come. So Matthew sees in these acts the gentleness of which Isaiah spoke. In verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. The time for confrontation will come. The time for the voice in the streets will come. But it was not yet. And we see another reason why Matthew quotes Isaiah. We see Jesus' gentleness not just in the withdrawal that he put some space between him and that specific conflict, but the way he treated this crowd that, that followed him. He healed them all. And I don't think he just you know, stood up here and just did a blanket wave and said, okay, all healed, everybody's good, you can go. He, I don't, that's not how Jesus operated anywhere. I think he went to each person, touched them, healed them, blessed them, valued them. So Matthew quotes Isaiah in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice to victory. It's radically different from the way the world thinks. Revolutionaries want angry people, powerful people, to overthrow their oppressors by force. Here is Jesus' mighty army, right? Bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. It's the weak, it's the sick, it's the poor, it's the powerless, it's the abused, it's the foreigner, it's the fearful, it's the broken. There we are. It's you and it's me that he wants and that he cherishes, that he treasures, that he treats with gentleness. And he brings his kingdom, and he changes the world. He flips worldly justice on his head, ultimately by subjecting himself to the absolute greatest injustice in human history. When he was arrested, Judas, the the Jewish group, brings a Roman cohort. That's probably 600 soldiers. They come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, normally translated, I am he. It's literally, I am. These hundreds of people fell down. <laughs> Gentleness. That's all. That's all it took as a word. I am. Hundreds of trained soldiers, they're down. Would have been really easy to win that battle, right? There's no battle there. Jesus conquers the world through gentleness. Simon Peter, ever loyal, right? Draws a sword, strikes off the ear of one of the servants there. Jesus rebukes Peter and <laughs> heals the servant. Interestingly, we have the servant's name. His name was Malchus which tells us that he must have come to faith and been part of the Christian community. There's a reason names are mentioned in these stories. Because you could go to Malchus and you could say, dude, what happened? (laughs) Show me that ear. I want to see it. Malchus said, yeah, here it is right here. You wouldn't not even a scar anymore. It's crazy, right? An amazing picture of gentleness when he could have shown power, when by worldly thinking that was the time, and yet gentleness. That's, That's who he is. And all through his trials, it was like this. All through his sufferings, he was like, like it says elsewhere in Scripture, like a lamb led to slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He had virtually nothing to say. The only resistance he offered was when someone offered him some wine that would have deadened his experience, his his experience of his sufferings. Is that not astounding? That is our, our gentle Savior. Now notice the progression, as I mentioned in verse 18 and 20 on justice. He says he will proclaim justice to the nations. And in verse 20, 
He talks about till he has brought justice through to victory. And we live between those times. It has been proclaimed through the cross, through the resurrection, the empty tomb. He will bring it. He will finish. He will succeed. So don't despair over the deeds of those in power, whether that's in your workplace, in your life somewhere, in some relationship, in your nation. Jesus will bring justice in his way, in his timing, and he will do it by his gentleness. This is a powerful example for us. It's incredibly subversive to the way the world works. We don't advance the kingdom of God by military force or by political power or financial resources, but by gentleness. You've encountered people in your life, your work, school, relationships, other places. They're power hungry. They're dominant. They're, they're oppressive in their personalities. They get things done and they look successful, but they leave a wake of destruction that is catastrophic. Now this doesn't mean, no, so the, the contrast is, is shown by Jesus is, is gentleness. This doesn't mean there's not a time and a place for the use of God-given authority. It doesn't mean there's not a place for confrontation, but all of this, especially within the body of Christ, has to be done in the spirit of gentleness. Not seeking power over other people, but serving them for the good of others. So, what I want us to do in our remaining moments is to think about this, um, this word picture of his gentleness toward bruised reeds and, and smoldering wicks. Uh, keep it waiting for the Bible translation to come out that will just put my picture instead of <laughs> that phrase. Here, just look at this guy. He's obviously a bruised reed, smoldering. My name's not Reed. Maybe if my name were Reed, it would. No, no sorry. Was... Yeah. Not in my notes, shouldn't have said it. I have to say that every time I preach because I always say stuff. So, reeds were used to make instruments for writing. They were used to make musical instruments, used sometimes for basket material. But if they were bruised or creased or broken, they were worthless. And they were useless. So a bruised reed, worthless and useless. You see a wick and a lantern, you're familiar with that. The lower end is in some kind of fuel, the... the the higher end is, is lit, and there's a flame that provides light. So a smoldering wick means something's wrong. There's lack of fuel, impurities in the fuel. The light is diminished, maybe obnoxious fumes. It's a picture of frailty, of failure. Something is wrong. So uh, worthless, useless, frail, barely holding on. Uh, don't raise your hand, but does that describe you? Does that describe how you feel sometimes? Does... Does this make you think of your own heart? I will raise my hand and say, yes, it describes me. Yes, this is where my heart is at times. Do your failures and flaws come to mind when you think of this, you hear this? Mine do. So if that, um, this describes you, how you feel, take heart. Okay? You're exactly the kind of person that Jesus loves to show his gentleness to. Now, we who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks face two great temptations. One is to think too much about our failures and flaws. So we can cons be consumed by these things. In fact, we can feed on them. I've seen this in my, in my own experience. Uh, something gets into my mind, and I'm consumed by that sin, that thought pattern. I just I go to a dark place. I can waste time thinking about things that don't matter. I can drive into... Poor choices, things like that, and, but it can cause us to de descend further and further, deeper and deeper 
into despair. Now, we can be honest about our sin. We have to be honest about our sin. Um, Melissa mentioned this in the prayer, you know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is he just? He is just because the price has been paid, right? So we're asking for, for justice in a way, justice with a nice empty tomb twist, right? We can be honest about our sin. We have to be, but we also need to keep perspective. There's a great book written by a man named Richard Sibbs. He was a Puritan. Put in a plug, read the Puritans, okay? Some of the happiest people on earth. See, that's not what you think about. You think of Puritans as these terribly grim people. Well, that's because they had a realistic view of sin. But because they had a realistic view of sin, they also had a realistic view of Christ. So um, they had their flaws, as do we all, but read the Puritans. So Richard Sibbs wrote a book, still in print. Anyone want to guess the year? Okay, 1630. Still in print. How much of what's written today do you think is going to be in print, you know, 400 years from now? I don't think much. The book is called The Bruised Read, and Sibs reminds us, the quote there says, despite our sins, we are in Christ. And as God is well pleased with Christ and delights in Christ, remember how we talked about that, right? He delights in Christ. Because we are in Christ, he is well pleased, delights in us who are in Christ. I will confess I have trouble wrapping my mind around this. I have trouble enjoying this. (laughs) But I believe it's true. I'm learning to enjoy this. Our second temptation is to think too little of Jesus' love for us. See, we think Jesus must be disgusted with us, disappointed with us. We think he treats us like we treat people we don't really like or people who drain us. You know people, they just, they just suck the life and energy right out of you, right? You see them from a distance. I'm not thinking of anyone here today. You see them from a distance. And you think, ah, oh, there they are. I don't know. Okay, I don't want to talk to them. Can I, can I walk across the street? Can I take a different route? Look at my watch. Oh, the time, do I have somewhere else to be? Look at my phone. Is there some crisis message that I suddenly need to go a different direction and not have to talk to this person? Look in the sky. Is there a comet approaching somehow so I won't have to talk to this person? We look for an escape. You think that's how Jesus looks at you? That's not how he looks at you. That is not how he responds to you. Another really helpful book in this is by Dane Orland called Gentle and Lowly. It's on some of this same passage from Matthew. And he says this, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. He loves to show his gentleness to his bruised reeds and his smoldering wicks. So if that is you today, take heart. You are treasured. You are cherished. You are not despised. He loves you. Your brokenness, your, your bruisedness, your smolder, you know, your smoldering wickedness, that's just not a good way to say that, right? It draws out his affection. It draws out 
his, his gentleness. So take heart. That is why I believe from verse 21 it says, In his name the nations will put their hope. Put your hope in Jesus today. Don't put your hope in your ability to change. Don't put your hope in, in your ability to, to look and, and mask everything. Put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. Go to him. Look to him. So we, you know, it takes us back to the first word where we started, where Isaiah says, Matthew quotes, Behold, the word that NIV didn't bring into English. Behold, look to Jesus. Look at him. See him. Learn from him. Have you, have you failed? Look to Jesus. Have you failed miserably? Look to Jesus. Have you failed miserably again? Look to Jesus. Are you flawed? Look to Jesus. Are you flawed deeply? Look to Jesus. Is your heart hard? Look to Jesus. Is your heart indifferent? Look to Jesus. Are you doubtful? Look to Jesus. You think he's disappointed with you? He lives to intercede for you. You think he's had enough of you? He'll never drive you away. You think he's disgusted with you? He cherishes you. He treasures you. You think he'll banish you? His throne is a throne of grace, a place where we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you fear punishment from him? If he disciplines you, it is out of love, not in anger. Do you think he's angry with you? Again, Dane Ortland's book, he says, his anger must be provoked, but not his love. His love is pent up, ready to gush forth. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Look to him in his gentleness. You have not yet believed in him. Look to him. Put your hope in him. You will find in him everything for which your heart hungers. He is worthy of your faith, your trust, your hope, your love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we gladly bow before you and confess there is no one like you who is so gentle with those of us, all of us who so do not deserve such gentleness, such kind treatment. We who were once your foes, your enemies, who on, on our behalf you paid an immense price that we can hardly fathom. And we come to you conscious of our failures, and yet you, you encourage us to look past that to you, to the cross, the empty tomb, to your wounds, to your intercession for us, to your reign on our behalf, to your soon return. And we look forward to seeing you. Understanding how goodness and mercy have followed us all the days of our lives and what it will be like to dwell with you forever. How we thank you and praise you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, those watching online under the sound of the voice and joining with us today, that your gentleness will warm our hearts, will be a balm to our wounded and weary souls, will be an encouragement to us to follow hard after you, to pursue you, to be like you. For those consumed with power, wanting to have power over others, let us embrace your subversive power of gentleness and, and serve to your glory. Thank you today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your gentleness. We praise you. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.